From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why automakers are becoming energy companies, how companies are financing the circular economy, a young business leader on the ongoing struggles of diversity in sustainability, and an insider's preview of World Water Week. It's all just a drop in the bucket this week on 350. It's August 25th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is Green Biz senior writer, Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, we seem to have survived the total eclipse of the sun. Uh, did you get a peak? I have to admit, it was somewhat anticlimactic over in Berkeley. It, there was dense, dense fog on a Monday morning. So I did not, unfortunately, see the eclipse. What about you? Well, no, this is the same story, not just, uh, you know, 30, 50 blocks away from you on uh, downtown Oakland, California. Uh, we you know, had the typical August weather, which is uh, overcast in the morning and beautifully sunny and 70 in the afternoon. But that did us a little good at uh, 10.15 in the morning when, when, when everything happened. But some of our green biz team uh, trekked up to Oregon. Little FOMO, little jealous, little, you know, wish I had been there because uh, the reports were just amazing. You know, kudos to those who trekked up to Oregon, which seemed like about a third of the state of California. Yeah, really. And I guess the other good news is the the power grid survived after a, a smaller scale, I would say, Y2K type freakout. Yeah, there was a lot of concern about that. And, you know, rightfully so, because, um, you know, the last uh, total eclipse uh, in the U.S. was in 1979 and you know we didn't have solar then and so all of a sudden we now have this uh this tremendous amount of of solar and in california it's you know 10 percent of 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 capacity and sometimes 40 percent on some days and so the question is what happens when all of that goes away and then all of that comes back can the cal iso the california independent system operator that runs the, the about 80% of the state's electric power system and the transmission lines. Could they, you know, figure that out and make that happen seamlessly so nobody was having brownouts or blackouts or anything else? And it worked. That wasn't all that happened this week, though. So let's jump right in to the week in review. <laughs> So let's start with you, Lauren. You had a couple great stories. Uh, one was about how from Tesla to Mercedes-Benz automakers are becoming energy companies. What do you mean by that? So this is a story we had been kind of kicking around for a couple of months now, obviously tied in a lot of people's minds, I think, to the ongoing efforts of Tesla Motors in our backyard down in Fremont and Palo Alto, California, to to integrate the work that Tesla has been doing for years in electric vehicles with solar cities, uh, solar technology and battery technology, since they acquired the solar provider also owned by Tesla founder Elon Musk in late 2016. But once you really dig into this, it's interesting to note that uh, Tesla is far from alone here. German luxury car maker Mercedes-Benz actually launched 
a U.S. energy division late last year as well. BMW, Ford, several other auto companies are also doing their own pilots and energy storage, vehicle-to-grid type experiments. So it's sort of the, the fruition of lots of years of thinking about how could electric vehicles someday impact our energy system. Yeah, lots of years is the, is the operative statement there. This has been something that uh, organizations like the Rocky Mountain Institute have been talking about for uh, quite a while. I mean, they've, they've published a number of papers about this, looking at um, not just how we electrify vehicles, but how those vehicles collectively become a rolling stock of uh, distributed energy resources, in other words, storage. If you've got all of that energy stored in all of those hundreds of thousands and eventually millions and millions of cars, is there an opportunity to tap into that to balance the grid during times of grid stress where you can, you know, if you own a, your Tesla or whatever car you have, your Chevy Volt or whatever vehicle that has a, a substantial amount of, 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 of battery storage, uh, let's say you, you know, you didn't need all that storage on a given day and you were willing to sell some of that into the grid uh, at a time during peak power when the grid would otherwise have fired up natural gas or, uh, or in some regions, maybe even a coal-fired power plant, what's called a peaker plant, the ones they keep on standby for those peak uh, periods in, let's say, afternoon. You didn't need that storage, uh, that energy to get home or wherever you were. So you were willing to do that and make a little bit of money for your car. And so the question and the interesting idea is how do all those cars and individually and collectively become uh, sort of utilities? And not only do the car companies become energy companies, but so do we. Right, right. And another interesting facet of all of this are the other sorts of companies that are looking to broker partnerships with automakers. So Vivint Solar, a big solar distributor here in the U.S., is one good example. I talked to their COO, Brian Christensen, who made a similar point to you, Joel. He said that you have a really great battery driving in and out of your home if you own an EV. So the question now is how you want to leverage that battery. Vivint has partnered with Mercedes-Benz Energy Americas to offer in-home uh, sort of a modular battery system. So you start with 2.5 kilowatt hours, but you can stack on other batteries. You do buy those batteries up front, um, so some cost of entry still at this point. But what's going to be interesting to watch is how this evolves from sort of pretty straightforward battery packs that you're sticking into your house to potentially... How do they roll this out for commercial customers or what does potentially a utility scale project that leverages some of this technology look like? All things to, to definitely keep an eye on. Well, speaking of commercial applications, you wrote another piece this week on seven companies to watch in sustainable shipping. And this is largely about electric vehicles at the commercial scale for transportation and logistics companies. And some of the companies of the seven you mentioned we know well, like UPS and Walmart, but there are some others that we hadn't heard of, like Convoy and Workhorse and Change. That's a company called Change with a J instead of a G. Yes, that's that is Change with a J in startup fashion. No comment on the name, but so these are a really interesting group of companies. In that you're right. So we're looking at now commercial scale EVs, which have a lot more challenges still than the consumer size version of, of these cars. Um, you've, you've got more questions about sort of range anxiety when you're thinking about long, long range deliveries for a company like Walmart or UPS. 
Obviously, you've got to think about charging infrastructure, the cost of paying for new EVs. So there are still some definite barriers. But the thing that's interesting about some of the companies uh, that are highlighted in this piece is the different sort of niches they're looking to occupy. So Change is a Los Angeles-based electric delivery vehicle startup, and they're playing in the space of smaller-scale electric vehicles, so like electric vans in this case. Though there are other companies like eTuck that are experimenting with even smaller electric vehicles, sort of think of the the tuk-tuk type uh, like three-wheeler that you might see in Asia or other countries. Uh, mostly for urban delivery environments. Uh, and there is big money involved here. So uh, a recent report by a firm called Research and Markets predicts that the last mile vehicle industry could be worth up to $792 billion by 2028. And the question is sort of how electrification plays into that. But the type of vehicle isn't the only thing. There's also business models to think about here. Joel, I know you've been really interested in this idea of the sharing economy going enterprise. So there are several companies that are trying to be sort of the Uber for trucking. Uh, you've got on-demand short-haul trucking company Cargomatic, though they've um, reportedly gone through some financial issues. So now you have a company called Convoy, which has raised $62 million in a Series B funding round this spring and has customers like Unilever and Anheuser-Busch. Um, but then you also have Uber, which has their Uber freight offering as well. Of all the companies that want to be the Uber for trucking, that would be, yeah, Uber. Right. What, so what are they doing? Uber, you've probably heard about some of the offshoot companies. They've embarked in Uber Eats, does food delivery. Another foray is called Uber Freight. Um, and it's a logistics platform that, that basically uses their, their system of using an app to call vehicles on demand. Uh, for large-scale trucks. So one question is how Uber, or potentially if their primary rival Lyft were to get into this space, might look at integrating hybrid or electric vehicles into their fleets. Um, but uh, the other big question, I think, down the road for, for trucking much more generally is how autonomous or self-driving technology also figures into the equation. Yeah, well, we could drone on about that for a while. Uh but never mind. That was a bad, bad joke. Um, but let, let's go to uh, another story that's sort of related to this, which is about the clean economy leadership in California. Is a piece that my colleague Heather Clancy wrote, um, and this is a report that comes out, I think, every year from a group called Next Ten, started by a guy called Noel Perry, who's been very active in showing how. Uh, California's economy continues to lead and measuring that, actually putting out sort of a state of the clean tech economy in California report. It's not what it's called. It's my description. And it's, it's really, really interesting. They came out with another one this week. Um, and uh, I will say that I am a behind the scenes unpaid advisor to this, uh, uh, one of the methodology and to the report, but uh, not really much of a role, but just wanted to point that out. Um, and it's, you know, I know there's a lot of people outside of California that are tired of hearing about California, you know, that, that yeah, 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 we're, you're great, all that kind of stuff. But I think there is a, a little bit of preening that needs to be done here, as Next10 uh, pointed out, which is that uh, our per capita growth in California is almost double the rest of the U.S. economy. And for all the 
uh, commentators, you know, bitching and moaning about tax rates or regulations or you know the heavy hand of government uh, in the state. We're doing pretty well, you know. Not for everybody. It's certainly there's plenty of uh, of inequity and inequality in California as there is throughout the United States. And there's a lot to be done. On there's and there's problems that that all this. Uh, wealth brings around gentrification, some things that I know you've been looking into, Lauren, but you know, it's still a pretty good news story. Yeah, there were a couple of data points I thought were really interesting in this piece. The first sort of headline number is that renewable power represented almost 22%. So getting close to a quarter of California's electricity generation capacity at the end of 2015, compared with just 1.8% the year before, and now way above the national average of 7.3% for the same period. But at the same time, there are also now 8.5 jobs in solar or wind generation for each position associated with fossil fuel production, and more than 300,000 jobs in the energy efficiency sector. But to your point, Joel, about some of the challenges, I thought our editorial director, Heather, did a, a great job of breaking down some of the ways you alluded to, there are connections between broader development challenges in a place like California, where you, you hear a lot about how unaffordable it is to live here and sort of how we think about our long-term climate goals. The single biggest culprit, as Heather says, to, to California's um, slowdown in, in moving towards its climate goals is the troubling increase in emissions from the transportation sector, which accounts for 38.5% of the state's total emissions. Um, and a big part of that, uh, the folks at Next10 concluded, were the commute times in personal vehicles that are getting longer as people are forced to move farther out of the big job centers in the cities, which they say is due in part to unaffordability. So it's just a really clear example, I think, of how these dots sort of connect between income, transportation, emissions, uh, and, and how we should be thinking about this moving forward. And yet the question, as you pointed out, is, is how long can this leadership continue in, in the Golden State? Um, some of these uh, metrics are starting to plateau or even uh, go in the wrong direction. And I, I think it's, you know, we've picked the low-hanging fruit, as, as we like to say. And now the question is, how do we get to the, the higher-hanging fruit? Um, Noel Perry, uh, the founder of Next10, says that we need climate policies 2.0, to, to really get us going from both a regulatory and technology perspective. So like it or not, we're going to keep checking in on the California clean tech economy because it's definitely uh, leading the way in the United States and, and showing what's possible. This week saw the return from hiatus of Liquid Assets, a monthly column by corporate water expert Will Sarney, first piece since he left Deloitte earlier this year where he led the water strategy practice for six years this week, Will gave us a preview of World Water Week, a week-long global water conference held each year in Stockholm, Sweden. I thought it was a good excuse to dial up my friend Will and check in. So, hey, Will. Joel, how are you? I'm good. Welcome to 350. <laughs> um, so what exactly is World Water Week? Well, I, you know, I, I describe it a lot of different ways. Um, for me, it is a uh, global convening of folks uh, – very diverse stakeholders that address uh, very specific issues around uh, water scarcity and water quality, uh, equity issues, uh, economic issues, and so on. And I want to say that I believe this has been uh, 25, 26 years uh, that Stockholm has uh, sponsored this annual event. And it started out when the 
mayor of Stockholm decided that they were going to uh, clean up the waterways around Stockholm and they, they started a festival and that festival grew into an event that draws a little bit over 3000 people, uh, from around the world, uh, academics, NGOs, multinationals, public policy experts, civil society, you know, essentially people that are very engaged in the world of water. And how long have you been going? Oh, I've been going, uh, probably seven plus years. Uh, you know, started out as a, uh, attendee spectator taking everything in. And, and now I'm on the scientific program committee. I think I'm in my fifth year. So, uh, the scientific program committee, uh, which is convened by Stockholm international water Institute, uh, builds the seminars. And those are the scientific convenings, uh, as part of the overall, uh, water week and, uh, I'm much more active in the event now than I, I was when I first showed up in beautiful Stockholm. So you've been watching the corporate water world for years. How do you view the rate of progress? Is, are you seeing widespread changes taking place, or is it just a handful of companies doing impressive things? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I think it depends on the day. I'm either encouraged by what I see or frustrated by the slow pace. And, uh, you know, the frustration resides in categorizing water as a sustainability CSR marketing PR comms issue, you know, one more uh, target to have uh, similar to, uh, you know, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, energy consumption uh, to what I believe is leading edge practices that actually align uh, a water strategy with a business growth strategy. Uh, and I, I treat that as the, a license to grow strategy. Um, so when I see the latter, I get very excited and encouraged that companies are really thinking about water as a strategic uh, resource input for their business and also a uh, environmental uh, and social issue that they want to be part of from the uh, solution perspective. And even some companies are now getting more engaged on driving technology innovation and uh, innovation and partnerships and so on. So, you know, it depends on the company. You know, I, I think there are a handful or two companies that really put money and resources into uh, water stewardship and, and water stewardship plus, uh, if you will. And, I think other companies are either playing catch up or uh, viewing it like carbon and other environmental issues. We've been talking a lot these days about the circular economy and water, it seems to me, is kind of the ultimate circular material thanks to the hydrological cycle. Is that becoming part of the conversation? Absolutely. And it's, it's actually very encouraging. And what you're seeing is you know, work by the Ellen A. MacArthur Foundation, uh, and they're, uh, you know, really driving change and engagement on the circular economy and, uh, engaging, uh, water professionals in that topic. And it's a natural for water. Um, you know, I view water as the ultimate renewable resource because of, you know, as you rightfully point out the hydrologic cycle, but also the ability to, uh, reuse water, uh, over and over again. 
And, you know, that really is a much smarter strategy than essentially what we do right now, which is use it once and throw it away. so this year's theme is uh, water and waste reduce and reuse, and the circular economy is uh, prevalent in a number of the sessions that uh, will be convened during the week. And one other point about the circular economy is that in the U.S. we talk about one water, and it, it's basically the the same uh, strategy and construct, just viewing water as uh, something that can be managed across its entire life cycle and reused over and over again. And uh, it also gets into things like uh, uh, resource recovery in wastewater. So, you know, can you recover wastewater sludges uh, for nutrients and uh, minerals, uh, even to generate energy, things like that. Where do the uh, sustainable development goals play into all this? Yeah, they, they actually tie in pretty well. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can't tell you which ones uh, do tie in, but, uh, you know, 6.1, well, the sustainable development goal six is all about water. Uh, universal access to safe drinking water, you know, sanitation and and hygiene. Um, there are other goals that address issues of waste uh, reduction, things like that. So I want to say that there are three or four that uh, track very nicely into uh, this year's theme. So now you've got something called Water Foundry. Give us uh, the elevator pitch about what you're doing. Sure. Um, you know, most people will say that, uh, boy, that's an interesting combination of words. Uh, for me, it sort of came naturally in that uh, I really believe there's an opportunity to uh, create, craft, build uh, innovative technology solutions, but innovation in business models, uh, partnerships, uh, financing models. So, you know, hence the name uh, Foundry, you know, really forging some new solutions in in the 21st century and what we do is uh, continue to work for u.s and non-us multinationals on quantifying water risk and how to mitigate the risk and developing strategies uh, including things like partnerships and so on Uh, but also working with uh, ngos foundations on water related issues and probably about half the work right now is working with water technology startups that are addressing very specific issues. And we have a bias for working with uh, digital technology solutions. So bringing digital applications into the world of water is an absolutely enormous opportunity uh, to be smarter about how we uh, manage water. So that is uh, Water Foundry. Well, sounds like you're busy as ever, and we'll look <laughs> forward to more of your fluid thinking in your monthly liquid assets column. Uh, Will Sarney, founder and visible of Water Foundry. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Joel. Always a pleasure. Over the past year or so, we've been covering increasingly this circular economy, this uh, emerging idea of, of how companies create products and services that keep molecules in motion uh, through continual use, uh, extend product life cycle and, and lifespan, increase utilization, shared economy, a number of other things. 
And making this transition is going to take a lot of money. If you're a company looking to take on these kinds of challenges, you can go partner with a nonprofit organization, you can finance things internally uh, through co corporate R&D, or you can go to outside financing from, well, banks and others. Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser looked into this this week and wrote a piece about financing the circular economy. Welcome, Anya. Hi, Joel. So tell us what you learned. So I learned that the circular economy, it's much more than just about closing the, the plastic packaging uh, waste stream or recycling. It's actually a new, well, emerging, as you said, model, um, economic model that decouples economic and business growth from environmental impacts related to waste. There's also a ton of business opportunity here. Um, and as I learned when I spoke to Ellen Martin, impact and reporting specialist at Closed Loop Partners, there's a lot of innovation in the space. Closed Loop Partners is an impact investing platform that was launched by Walmart um, in 2013, along with recycling, consumer product, and supply chain experts uh, who all bring their different expertise to um, research and develop ways to reclaim billions of dollars of value from the waste stream. And they also have a venture fund that invests in early stage innovations that address specific needs in circular business models. Um, they administer the closed loop fund, which is a hundred million dollar effort targeting these early stage innovations with the goal of deploying all of the capital by 2025, which is coming up pretty soon. So um, so Ellen um, works with a lot of companies, including uh, P&G, which are developing right now solutions to recycle plastics and put that money back into business operations. So the closed loop fund, uh, as you said, was started by Walmart, but eventually brought in investments from companies like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, Johnson & Johnson, Goldman Sachs, Unilever, uh, Nestle, Water, Colgate, uh, 3M, and they've pulled a bunch of money together. So what are they doing with this money, uh, and why is there this increased investment in the circular economy right now? So they're coming together because these companies that are producing consumer goods also have responsibility for what happens to these goods after they leave stores. And um, so any of these sustainability challenges around waste stream and packaging are too, really they're too big and complex for any one company to solve. And Closed Loop Partners brings together all of these different organizations to think up solutions. Closed Loop Fund was started as a way to address the systems challenges that we face as a society around uh, addressing packaging waste and then turning that material, which has a useful life, into new content that companies like Unilever, like Procter & Gamble, like Pepsi, uh, like Keurig Green Mountain can use in their supply chains as post-consumer recycled content. So how's it going? I'm sure there's uh, probably some funding gaps, particularly at this early stage. Uh, what did you find out? So since they started making um, these uh, investments, they found, of course, a lot of demand for projects for municipalities, for companies and recyclers. But what about the supply? There is not quite as much. And there are other opportunities here that aren't as obvious. We have learned over the last three years um, since we started making investments um, that there is um, pretty robust demand in terms of um, debt financing, um, which our loan fund is providing, uh, both from municipalities and from uh, recycling companies. However, there have also been um, a number of opportunities that really are earlier stage, so innovations um, in technologies, in business models that are still um, yet to be proven and tested. 
And those require a different kind of capital. So really what we're seeing is a gap in terms of risk capital uh, that may come in the form of private philanthropy or grants or impact investors who can, can be that first money in on a lot of these opportunities. Uh, and then we see ourselves as playing a role in catalyzing additional capital where we're also able to offer below market rate loans that help a more traditional investor um, co-invest with us and make um, that access to capital all the more real for, for those entities that um, can succeed with their business models. Beyond having a responsibility to help reclaim waste, companies also have a responsibility to fill the financing gaps to get there, as Ellen said. And there are a couple ways that Closely Partners is helping organizations structure contracts and make investments go where they're most needed to catalyze this innovation. So um, corporates have a lot of opportunity. Um, certainly our investors are um, taking the step of making an investment in a system solution. Um, but they have a lot of influence just in the fact of their own, the demand that they create in their daily core business operations. So um, that demand pull is really critical in um, generating a stronger and more robust market for recycled content, which can be reused. And um, the way that that demand is manifest is also another area that we are, are looking more and more at as we work more with recycling companies in the sense of you know, corporates and the way that they structure their contracts, for example, can create stability and really help to strengthen the system overall over the long term. Um, so that's uh, another opportunity that, that companies can have. I think certainly the additional piece of it that is important for us to, to keep in mind, too, is that corporates just have the power of, of having their, the brand themselves and um, their relationship with the consumer as a way of educating and helping to bring uh, individuals along on this journey with us as we're trying to improve systems that are often much more complex than um, a single purchase. I thought it was interesting what Procter & Gamble's doing uh, with polypropylene. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, they created a way in-house to sustainably recycle polypropylene plastic, and then they licensed the technology to a third party to create a factory that will um, allow other organizations to use the recycled material. So PureCycle is a new technology that has an opportunity to really transform the way that polypropylene is recycled. It's a very advanced process that um, could be quite impressive and transformational for the field. And I think Procter & Gamble is doing um, important work to help advance the use of that technology in the industry. In our own portfolio, we actually have... Um, uh, some really great um, end market investments that we've made recently that, that are helping to move the industry along. One uh, is called Integrico Composite Lumbers, and um, they make railroad ties out of plastic waste. So you might not initially think of railroad ties as being part of a, a circular economy when you're talking about consumer packaged goods, but um, it is an important part of this um, process. So they, as a company, um, make railroad ties out of plastic waste, replacing the use of virgin wood. Um, and this material creates 
uh, more demand as an end market for the recycling infrastructure that is collecting that material. So today with um, export markets um, being really challenged with this material, this material, even though it's recycled, recyclable, is sometimes um, not does not make it to an end market, and it ends up getting landfilled. Um, Integrico is doing some important work with a ready demand for railroad ties to create more product and um, really build uh, an opportunity for the industry to at least get that pull that material through the system. So all of these investments we're talking about with the closed loop fund is about bringing more recycled material into the product uh, streams to use for packaging as these companies uh, have zero waste commitments and, and, and circular economy commitments. This fund is, you know, how do you bring materials like polypropylene to market in a way that hadn't been cost effective before? Is that what's needed to make the circular economy more mainstream? I would say yes. Just as many barriers to financing the circular economy, there are just as many solutions because there are so many players in this space, uh, from governments to corporations, um, and they all are increasingly understanding the need to do something new with the waste stream. So it's not just, you know, as, as so many other concepts in sustainability, it's not just about addressing a problem, it's about dreaming up solutions. Well, interesting stuff, Anya. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Associate Editor, Anya Olomizer. Thanks, Anya. Thanks so much, Joel, and uh, closing the loop here until I go on my vacation next week. <laughs> well, have fun. So this week we ran a great contributed piece by Jerami Bond, who is the manager of sustainability at Interface. They are the world's largest manufacturer of modular commercial carpets and also a company we've written about for their 2020 Mission Zero goal. That's something that encompasses not only carbon emissions, but also things like water, waste, and other facets of sustainability. The article that Jerami contributed this week looks at why diversity is the key to unlocking sustainability. And here to discuss now is Jerami Bond. How's it going? Awesome. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Great to talk to you today, Lauren. So let's start with the basics here. How did you first get into the field of sustainability? So it definitely was a winding journey. I, uh, Growing up, I always loved nature. I spent summers at outdoor camps, explored the woods in my backyard, buried myself in library books, learning about all kinds of plants and animals and all that good stuff. Uh, but as I grew up, I developed an affinity for the built environment. And so entering my freshman year at North Carolina State, I was majoring in civil engineering. And my goal was to graduate and build amazing bridges, stadiums, and so forth. And actually, on my first engineering internship with NCDOT, I was supporting infrastructural assessment on highway projects. And the funny thing is that during that internship, I realized that I was way more interested in the creeks and wetlands below the bridges than the actual bridges I was working on. And so this was the first sign for me. And from there, I took the logical step into environmental engineering. It was sort of a one-year pit stop. Um, and environmental engineering was really the bridge that helped me recognize my desire to pursue a career path that allowed me to have a much more intimate impact on people and planet specifically through the power of business. And thus, I changed my major for the final time to environmental science with a focus in sustainable materials and technology. 
and here I am today. So um, that's a little bit on how I got into into sustainability. And over the past year or so, I've really begun turning my career focus toward my passion for people. I believe that as we heal the environment, we inherently help people. But there's so many social issues that I want to galvanize the sustainability community around, including um, investing in underserved communities, climate justice, and even diversity and inclusion, which I wrote about um, for GreenBiz. And so that's just a little bit on me and how I got into sustainability. Yeah, that's an interesting path going from infrastructure to all the way to materials. I'm curious now, and you mentioned that you're you're sort of interested in taking a more holistic purview when you think about sustainability. What kind of work are you focused on now day to day at Interface? Yeah, so within my role, I am responsible for kind of liaising between uh, the sustainability team and all internal departments here in the Americas. And so really finding ways to connect and align them with our Mission Zero and Climate Take Back commitments. Now, I work most closely with our sales force, providing sustainability training, tools and resources that help build out their capacity to, one, meet our customers' needs, but two, continue acting as ambassadors of our vision for positive impact through business. And so I spend quite a bit of time engaging our customers, the architecture and design community, as well as other industry stakeholders in our mission. Um, But on the other side, I lead efforts to really cultivate our company culture through sustainability engagement programs. Um, I build out initiatives that help us to reinforce our values, um, serve the communities in which we work and play, and also help our employees do what I like to call bring sustainability home, helping them understand how to integrate it into their everyday lives, um, helping them really grasp the high level mission that we're striving toward, but really showing them the value of sustainability uh, when it comes to health and wellness, um, giving back to community and, you know, cost savings and things like that. And so um, definitely, you know, no, for me, no day looks the same. I'm in a very hybrid role in which I take the deep green and make it digestible for our employees and our consumers. And the piece you wrote this week, which we'll link to in our show notes, is actually the first in a series we'll be running on honorees from our 30 under 30 list. Jeremy, you were obviously just on the list that came out this spring. Um, and I mentioned that the headline for your column was why diversity is the key to unlocking sustainability. Can you just tell us a little bit about your motivation for writing this piece? Sure. So my motivation for this article really stems from my experience in the sustainability community thus far, um, which has been a positive one. I've really enjoyed meeting, connecting, and collaborating with so many like-minded professionals. Um, It's truly been refreshing. But for me, a big white elephant in the room has been the fact that I rarely see anybody that looks like me in this community. And I have a real desire for more minorities, more people of color to be a part of this movement in the business space um, for two main reasons. One, because it's simply just so energizing and full of opportunity to create meaningful impact. But secondly, because I think the movement needs us. I think I think it needs diversity to influence everyday behavior and organ- organizational shifts across the board. And so this was my motivation, uh, my experience combined with my vision for 
um, all people really contributing to creating a better planet and a better society. And to drill down a bit, there was one term you used that I thought was interesting. You write that within the world of corporate responsibility, you refer to yourself as a quote unquote super minority. Can you expand sort of on what you mean by that? And again, to sort of maybe put it through this lens of like why why that dynamic is important to address for sustainability as a profession? Sure. So it's been very interesting for me. Um, thus far in my career, because, you know, in corporate America in general, when you step outside of sustainable business for a second, um, that space does have, you know, challenges with diversity already. And so this isn't a new challenge. This is not a challenge unique to sustainable business. Um, And so no matter what function I may have within corporate America, that's going to be, you know, a challenge. But when you take a step further, Um, within sustainable business specifically, there aren't as many minorities. And so I kind of felt like there's two layers to um, almost being a a lone wolf in this area. Um, So that's what I meant by being a super minority. But I think one thing that I've really enjoyed is finding ways to um, really mentor and share with other purpose-driven students, um, collegiate students who have an appetite for Um, careers that allow them to really help businesses become more sustainable. And so by investing in the next generation, which was one of the points from the article, I feel like I've been able to um, play a role in helping pave a way for um, tomorrow's leaders that are right behind me. So then thinking ahead to, to sort of how companies that are that are interested in addressing diversity, addressing sort of in- inclusion in the way their workforce is developing, um, one, one concept you mentioned that I wasn't super familiar with was this idea of engaging with what you call cultural liaisons. Can you sort of uh, explain that idea? And, and again, if there are other things that, that you would think uh, might make sense for companies to, that are looking to really dig into diversity? So when thinking about cultural liaisons, there's so much value that they bring to organizations. Um, So when we bring these cultural liaisons aboard the sustainability movement and specifically onto corporate sustainability teams, they can do a lot of things. You know, for example, bridge knowledge gaps, um, even speak the language of their people, um, even influence responsible business practice and consumer behavior because they are the ones that know what's important to their particular people group. They understand their value systems, their traditions, um, and really empathize with where they are in life. And so I feel that if every sustainability team is armed with diversity um, on the team, everybody's going to be able to reach a particular segment of the population and take, you know, whatever mission or vision that organization may have and um, translate it into um, what really helps it resonate with that particular group. And so in, in addition to kind of speaking to um, their people, they can also bring fresh perspective and innovative solutions to the world of corporate sustainability strategy. And so I think that by bringing more liaisons on board, by increasing diversity, um, the reach of the corporate sustainability team will really increase and will begin taking steps toward really mainstreaming sustainability, taking it outside of this niche community that's excellent, that's full of leaders and innovation and ideas. But for us to realize the world we want to realize, it's going to 
take more than just us. It's going to take everybody getting on board. And so I think diversity is a tool for making that happen. And the last question I had for you, Jeremy, uh, I, I mentioned before we started recording, actually, that your piece is the most read on our site today. And again, we'll link to the column in our notes for this week's podcast episode. But the, the last question I had for you is really more general. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you might hope that readers or listeners will take away from, from these ideas. I say first and foremost, diversity matters. Um, I hope that through sharing my experience, it provided kind of a small but insightful glimpse into the mind and experience of a minority in general, but then also maybe even a minority within the sustainable business world. And as our country's historically unstable racial climate becomes even more manifest due to, you know, the recent events, you know, our, our country's political climate, the Charlottesville tragedy, even, uh, you know, the recent uh, police violence against black men, um, you know, all these things have really shaken up the climate of our country. And I want sustainability professionals to rise up and lead and just be more vocal, um, supporting those who fight daily for equity and social justice, but then also taking action, taking tangible steps. And I was talking to my friend and mentor yesterday, Lindsay James, and we were discussing how sustainability professionals, we can really build bridges that we desperately need in this time. Um, We have the knowledge, we have the access to decision makers who can influence the quality of people's lives. And so um, there's a responsibility that comes with that. Um, You know, we have a lot of opportunity and that comes with a lot of responsibility. So I'd love to see diverse groups of sustainability professionals just pressing into difficult conversations and working to generate high-impact solutions hand-in-hand. So I I hope that the actionable steps I provided in the article, whether it's becoming comfortable with discomfort, investing in the next generation, and embracing the business case and value of diversity, um, we can all partner together, support each other as we seek to use our platforms for even greater good. Definitely a timely and important piece. Jeremy Bond, the Atlanta-based manager of sustainability at Interface. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. It was great. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. And we love to get your emails, so send them to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce back from her European travels. And we'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.